after Jesus' dinner at Bethany and Mary's anointing of him for his burial, which we looked at last week, you'll recall, the very next thing that happens the next day is Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the aftermath of which brings us to our text this morning in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20, and we'll make three points. You can see them on the back inside page of the bulletin, seed, servants, seeds. So, John chapter 12, beginning verse 20, the first point is seed. We're told that some Greeks came to see Jesus. Greeks means Gentiles, um, generally people from any part of the Greek-speaking world, and the term, as you know, is contrasted with Jews, so that Greeks and Jews, or Jews and Gentiles, is shorthand in John especially, but in the whole New Testament for the peoples of the whole world. So right after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, Caiaphas, the high priest, prophesied. He did it unknowingly, John tells us. And what he prophesied was that Jesus would die not only for the nation, not only for the Jewish nation, but for the children of God scattered abroad. That is, he would die not only for Jews, but for Gentiles, for the Jewish nation and those scattered in the other nations. So these Greeks, they're probably God-fearers. They have not converted to Judaism, but they're interested. They come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And they come to Philip. Philip is a Greek name. And Philip's from Bethsaida, the text tells us, which is in Galilee, which is a region with a lot of Gentiles, bordering a Gentile nation. So he's probably more Hellenized, more Greek than some of the others. So he's a natural one to ask. They figure this out quickly. We're Greeks. This is the guy we need. We need Philip. And they say, we would like to see. The word means question or interview. Jesus. And Philip tells Andrew, another Greek name. And the two of them go and tell Jesus of the request. And Jesus, now this should be no surprise to you at this point, ignores the request and decides he wants to have a different conversation. And in verse 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's quite a redirection, it appears. They go to Jesus and say, there's a couple of guys here who would like to talk to you. And Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He does this repeatedly through the gospel. Now, this idea of the hour, as we've already seen, is a really key theme in John's gospel. You'll recall way back when Mary comes to Jesus, to her son, at the wedding in Cana, and she tells him they're out of wine. You'll remember his reply. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Later in the gospel, they're seeking to arrest him. And we're told by John, no one laid a hand on him, for his hour had not yet come. But now all of that here in our text has changed. The hour has now come, Jesus says. 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. His hour, this hour then, is centered on the cross. Right? You can see this plainly in what Jesus says next. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies. Right? There you have it. Right? That's a direct, explicit reference to his imminent death. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The singular to the plural. And so this hour is the time when Jesus is going to sow the single lone seed that is his life into death. So that once raised, it can bear abundant fruit. So this sowing, then, the supreme act of his obedience is the hour which is at hand. And then you get a little scene. It's sort of John's equivalent of the, of the Gethsemane scenes in the other Gospels, where Jesus says, now, right? not previously, but now the Lord says, my soul is troubled. My soul is troubled. And this is a very, very strong word. Troubled is a bit of a modest or moderate translation. The word signifies revulsion or horror, even anxiety or agitation. So we must be careful, right? Jesus has complete confidence, complete trust in his Father. But he is not cavalier. He doesn't have some let's bring it on attitude, right? He's not some sort of chest-thumping bravado uh, speaking guy. He has perfect confidence in his Father, perfect trust, and yet there's a kind of revulsion and horror that he's facing that is disturbing him in the depths of his humanity. Even though he knows this is the hour of his glory, he is disturbed and troubled. And he knows, of course, that the physical anguish is not the whole of the horror. Although I think often, in our circles, because we emphasize so much the penalty, the spiritual penalty, we miss and underplay the horror of the physical dimension of this crucifixion. It is a ghastly way to die. I've recommended this before, but if you want to look into what this entailed, you should read the great German scholar Martin Hengel's little book. It's 70 pages. It's just called Crucifixion. It will explain what it is like to die this way. But of course, Jesus knows he's also going to be bearing the sins of the world. He's going to be made sin. He's going to become a curse. He's going to confront the powers of darkness and bear the wrath that is due to us on account of our sin. This is the cup he stares into. And so in verse 27, he says, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He says, No, it's, it's for this very reason that I came to this hour. So he is in this lonesome valley, and it's no cul-de-sac. You cannot turn around and get out. You have to go through. This is what the writer to the Hebrews is referring to when he says that Jesus, during the days of his flesh, prayed with loud cries and with tears. That's how Jesus prayed to the one able to save him from death. 
And you can see he resolves not to ask for the cup to be taken from him. In this hour, this is the hour of God-forsakenness. He concludes here by saying, Father, glorify your name. Now, notice what has happened, because it's counterintuitive, I think. Twice, in this short passage, twice he's connected the cross, which is the Roman state-sponsored instrument of public execution and shame for criminals, for insurrectionists. He's connected that cross. Now, you may be used to this, but he's connected that cross with glory. It's about as scandalous a thing that you could do in the first century Greco-Roman world to connect that with glory. Here's what Cicero says about the cross. Cicero, by the way, not given to hyperbole or exaggeration, says this. The executioner, the veiling of the head, and the very word, the very word cross, should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. For it is not only the actual occurrence of these things, but the very mention of them that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and of a free man. Roman citizens weren't executed. right? So Jesus has now connected this with glory. In verse 23, he says, The hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And of course, the Father responds from heaven, saying that I have glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. The glory of the Father has been shown in Jesus' ministry, but shortly, very shortly, it's going to be shown supremely at the cross. At the cross. Now, the crux of what I want us to see this morning from this text, what's on display here, and again, this is something uniquely seen in John's Gospels. It's not, it's a theme that John takes up, and the other Gospels don't have it as clearly. Now, when we, we usually think of the cross as a part of Jesus' humiliation and the resurrection. That's the onset of his glory. And by the way, that's clearly true. Our confessions speak that way. Scripture speaks that way. 1 Peter chapter 1, the humiliations of Christ and the glories that would follow. That's what the prophets looked forward to. But what John is saying is this is not the whole picture. And simply just saying you have humiliation followed by glory can obscure something wonderful that's on display here. And so John, the theologian, that was his nickname in the early church, the, the author of this gospel, John the theologian. Right? He says, the hour of the cross is the hour of Jesus' kingly triumph. It's the hour of glory. And this is a stunning new thought in the world. Of course, the cross has become somewhat domesticated for us, so it's hard to feel the edge of this. Jesus, after all, was proclaimed king at his birth. He just, prior to our text, entered in to Jerusalem on a donkey, also proclaiming himself as king. 
And so he was, in fact, the glorious king throughout his whole life. But here's the difficulty. That glory was veiled by his humble servant form. It's a kingship in the form of a servant. But it was there, nevertheless, John says, visible to the eyes of faith. But now, in this hour, the hour of the cross, that kingly glory is about to reach its earthly apex for those who have eyes to see it. And John the theologian has eyes to see it. And ever since him, the Christian church has had eyes to see it. And so part of this text presents us with a question. When we look at the cross, the spectacle, do we see humiliation? Sure, sure we do. But that alone is not going to suffice for us. It's a, it doesn't, it's a partial form of seeing. What we are meant to see here is glory in humiliation. That's what's happening on the cross. Glory, kingly victory, not in spite of, but inside of death. This is why Jesus can say, for this very reason I came to this hour, the hour of darkness, which is my hour of glory. This is God himself in your humanity getting to the bottom of human darkness and alienation. As one writer puts it, Jesus embraces the cross precisely as a king embraces a scepter. It's an instrument of regal and royal rule. The, uh, the Anglican scholar missionary Leslie Newbegin said that in the act of Jesus' crucifixion, the glory which is the flaming heart of the universe is revealed. When you, when you are at the foot of the cross, you are at the glory that is the flaming heart of the world. You're not just in, at one particular religious experience among a world of religions. Or one particular Christian experience off in the side. You are at the glory of the universe being unveiled. Because this is the seed the seed which is sown into the earth to bear many seeds, to bring forth many seeds. So that's the first point. The second point is servants. So here we're, we're talking about what Jesus thinks it means for Christian discipleship, for you and me, that he does this, that he sows his life, his single seed into the ground. And he will basically say something like this. Now, this too is shocking, and we're not used to hearing it, but at the same time, we've sort of domesticated it. You know what Jesus is going to say it means for you? That he has sown his life as a single seed into the ground in the humiliation of the cross? Do you know what he's going to say? He's going to say this. You are going to have to do likewise. He doesn't say, I got this, don't worry. He's going to say, I alone am the Redeemer. That's true. I take your place to be sure that's true. But you are not going to be left unscathed by what's about to happen if you follow me. The cross is not something that just happens out there for your sake. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus did that for us. He says to his disciples, you 
are going to be drawn deep into the mystery of my death and resurrection. My sowing of a single seed is going to produce many seeds. And as I am displaced, you are going to be displaced. It's really shocking language. Anyone, he says, this is how he follows this up. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Verse 25. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Now remember, the disciples that Jesus is talking to, they are following him into Jerusalem, into the eye of the storm. Many will become martyrs. But here's the thing about Christianity. All must be willing to be martyrs and all die daily. Christianity is martyrdom. Death and resurrection with Jesus. So as you know, Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And so Jesus is saying to us here, if you're going to try and protect your life, if that's what we're going to do, if our life is going to remain central, if we're going to refuse to sow our life as seed into the death of Jesus, we will in the end lose the very thing we're seeking to protect. Right? This is the paradox of human existence and the central paradox of the mystery of the Christian faith at which the center of is this cross. And so the, the flip side of this, again, this is in verse 21, uh, 25. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You know how Jesus puts this in Luke 14, right? He puts it in the starkest, almost, it sounds almost inhumane the way he puts it. Right? He says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person They may be able to be a lot of things. They can't be my disciple. I don't know if there's ever been more cutting words than that spoken. It's essentially the same thing that Paul says when he says, let those who have wives be as if they didn't. Let those who buy and sell be as if they didn't. Now, Jesus does not think, of course, that you have to despise your existence. He comes to give us life, an abundant life. We've learned that in this gospel. He's for human healing and flourishing and renewal. But whatever love and whatever affection we have for our lives, we must be speaking them, speaking of our lives as lives which have been sown into this death. Right? Have been united to Jesus in his cross and his resurrection. Lives which have been laid down and lives which we receive back and continually receive back from the hand of God. In that way, you save your life, and your life is renewed, and your life is healed. So there's a sort of diagnostic question that we can use to get at the issue here. Here's the question. What if, let's just say an observer asked, what narrative is central to your existence? The narrative of what God has done and is doing in Jesus, or the narrative of your own life to which Jesus is an accessory? In other words, does Jesus exist for our narratives? Or has our narrative been baptized, displaced, and caught up into his narrative? This is is a world of difference 
One is Christianity. The other is something which looks a lot like Christianity, but isn't. It turns out that only the appropriate kind of otherworldliness can underwrite the appropriate kind of thisworldliness. Only the appropriate kind of heavenly-mindedness can create the right kind of earthly engagement. Only the appropriate kind of losing one's life in this world can enable one to save one's life. And beloved, you know this, right? This is not, if you were to compile a list of Christian ethical teachings, what we are talking about here in a certain way would not be on the list. It's the thing which is behind and sustains the list. It's the central thing which is true at every point of Christian existence. This union with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. And so the essence here is whoever would, as he says, whoever would, who does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Verse 26, disciples follow and serve the master where he is. Jesus says this, where I am, my servant will be also. So you know, these disciples would get down there into Jerusalem and they'd run from where Jesus is. Jesus wants deeply for us to be where he is. And that means for us that the cross is the place where we have the depth of communion with him. In this age, even resurrection power, Paul says, comes through the cross. That I might know him, he says in Philippians, and the power of his resurrection being conformed unto his death. So you never leave this behind. We never leave this behind. So as it was for him, so it is for us. Now, now, beloved, this little bit about Jesus' death and the kernel of wheat, it looks and feels different, does it not? It looks and feels different. He is saying, in the spectacle that is my execution, there are no spectators. I will not allow you to be a spectator to the spectacle of my cross. You are to be a participant, an imitator, a person on the inside of this mystery. That's what it means, he says, to be my servants. Finally, then, seeds, Jesus explains what it means for the Father to glorify the Son, beginning in verse 31. This is majestic and marvelous. He says it means three things for me to be glorified. First, now, in this hour, now is the time for the judgment on this world. The world and its kings are rendering judgment on Jesus, and even as they render it, the royal king, glorious in his humiliation, is reversing the verdict. And he's rendering judgment on the world. This is the glory that is at the flaming heart of the universe. Not only the mystery of the human condition is unveiled at the cross, but the mystery of the world's disorder and its healing is unveiled there. Now is the hour for the judgment of this world. I mean, that's strange too, is it not? Because we think that when Jesus comes again, that will be the time of the world's judgment. But he says, now, in my cross, wielded as a scepter, the world is already judged. 
So the cross is this coming judgment at the end of the age brought forward into this time. The last judgment of the world is already beginning. So in the cross, we see God's absolute, final, decisive no to human deceit and rebellion. And so now we're left with this choice. Either we flee to this cross and allow ourselves to be judged there, or we flee from it and we face the coming judgment without this broken advocate. Either way, either way, on the cross, by means of the cross, Jesus reigns. You know, one of the beautiful things about this, John doesn't talk about it, but Paul would bring it out at this point, I think, is that when we talk about you being justified by faith, your sins being acquitted, you know what that means for you? It means that that final judgment has already been rendered on your behalf. Isn't that a most magnificent thing? But we are not afraid of the coming judgment. Because you know what? We already have the verdict. The jury has sent it in to us in advance. Not guilty. That's why the writer to the book of Hebrews can say that for his saints, Christ will appear a second time without reference to sin. But for the salvation of his saints. There is a real sense which for you... The final judgment is already a thing of the past. That's not the whole story, but it's a definite part of the story. The second thing the glory means is that the prince of the world will be driven out, Jesus says. This, the coming judgment on satanic powers, you can, see, you can see Satan judged finally in Revelation chapter 20. But he's already been judged, stripped of his power, Paul says, because Christ triumphed over the dark principalities, the demonic powers in his cross. He's made a public spectacle of them. The world has been judged. The powers have been judged. And third and finally, Jesus says in verse 32, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And this lifted up refers to his death. You can see that plainly in verse 33. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus is lifted up, hung from a cross in his death. And it's as exalted in his death that the risen one draws all peoples to himself. Or another way of putting this is John sees Christ's exaltation as beginning. On the cross. Calvin has this memorable phrase here the cross will be, as it were, a chariot by which he will raise all men along with himself to his Father. Let me conclude. You might have forgotten there's some Greeks who want to see Jesus. Remember, remember those guys? <laughs> there's, there's some Greeks who want to see Jesus. You know what? I think we can see that Jesus has indeed answered their requests more profoundly than they could have imagined. Jesus is saying this. Look, if the Greeks, if the nations, if the peoples of the world want to see me, I'll show them my glory. They can see the seed I'm about to sow in the ground. 
And they can see that that seed will produce many seeds. A harvest not just among Jews, but among Gentiles. Not just among the sheep in this pen, but the scattered sheep of God abroad, as John says earlier. He has, in fact, said, oh, believe me, Greeks will see me. That's what Jesus' answer means. Believe me, the nations will see me. So we must learn to see aright. Right? This is always a challenge for us, is it not? Because the world is always spraying stuff on our eyes. And our own souls are always bringing up muck. And our glasses need to be cleaned off. And the windows of our soul need the smog off it. Right? And so this is one of these texts which reminds us and brings into sharp focus some things that we need to perpetually see better. The glory of God, as the poet says, shines in a thousand places, but it shines most luminously in the disfigured one on the cross. And so when we come to this text, we're reminded that we are people who lift up the cross. This is not a defeat that is reversed in the resurrection. This is a glorious act of kingly victory revealed and made universal in the resurrection. And this, because of John the theologian, again, it's not like this is absent from the other Gospels, but it's muted in the other Gospels, and it's prominent in John. This, the church has always grasped. If you go back to the second century, Justin Martyr, famous philosopher convert to Christianity, He said, the Lord hath reigned from the tree. And in the 4th century, Augustine says, this is marvelous. Augustine says, the Lord has established his sovereignty from a tree. Who is it that fights with wood? Christ, from his cross, he has conquered kings. And then my favorite, a 6th century hymn, which puts it this way. That which the prophet king of old hath in mysterious verse foretold is accomplished while we see God ruling the nations from a tree. In this we rejoice. Jesus does for us what we cannot do. And in a profound way he does it alone. But then he summons us to this form of life this form of losing our lives, that we may keep them to eternal life. So the message of the cross here, demanding as it is, is quite simple. Follow me. Be where I am. Live in the shadow at the foot of the cross. Take up your cross. My Father will honor you with eternal life. In this way, you too reign and shall reign with the Lord who does reign from the tree. Amen.